Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 53 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Today, we're going to talk all about taxes. Now, it was just tax season. We're not necessarily talking about how to file taxes. We're not talking about income taxes. We're going to talk about this intersection, this very, very important intersection of taxes and investing. So I've got a few different articles that I'm going to pull some important information from. All those articles will end up in the show notes. So if you want to read those articles, and especially if you want to consult some of the charts in those articles, check out the show notes, check out those links, read those articles. Before we get started, I am trying to be more intentional with growing the Best Interest Podcast. It's been going really well so far this year. And one thing that really helps growing the podcast and attracting potential listeners, helping them decide if they want to listen to the show, is the show's ratings and reviews. So if you've listened to the show before, if you're listening right now and you enjoy this episode, I'm hoping that you could leave a rating and a review if you have the time. On Spotify, you can only leave a rating. If you use Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating and a review. Either one works Thank you in advance if you choose to do that, and thank you for listening to the Best Interest Podcast. Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. So today we're going to tackle the topic of taxes from a few different angles, mixing in a few different thoughts. Three things are certain in life, death taxes, and a couple weekly articles from The Best Interest. This one, this idea, addresses death and taxes. We're going to talk about the most common mistake in understanding taxes, our current federal tax brackets, how tax brackets work, a common myth about getting a raise at work, and how you can save thousands off your tax bill every year. And we'll answer these questions using some easy charts, which I know you won't be able to see, but if you refer to the link in the show notes, you can see them, and some easy math. So let's go on. Let's start with the opposite of how tax brackets work. Let's say we have a person, Ben. Ben is a side hustler. He builds some kites. He writes almanacs. He designs bifocals, and he makes $100,000 per year. Ben looks at the federal tax brackets, which you can just Google online, and he says, ah, based on my $100,000 salary, I fall in the 24% income tax bracket. Therefore, my tax burden must be 24% of $100,000 or $24,000 in taxes. The math is pretty easy there. 24% times 100,000 leads to 24,000 in taxes. But Ben is wrong. That is not how tax brackets work. And he's off by thousands and thousands of dollars. The federal tax brackets are a progressive system. The chart below, the table here in the in the article, visually shows you exactly what that means. It means your early dollars are taxed less and your later dollars are taxed progressively more. And now how much more? That answer is given by the federal tax brackets. For recent years, they've stayed relatively stable. The federal tax brackets might change in future years. But roughly speaking here, your first $10,000 are taxed at 10%. The next $30,000 you earn are taxed at 12%. The next $45,000 you earn are taxed at 22%. I won't keep going from there, but you can see as you earn more dollars, your marginal dollars eventually start getting taxed at higher and higher rates. But the earlier dollars, they're still taxed at the original lower 10, 12, 22% rates. Now, 
once you see this visually, once you see this graphically, you'll see how the portion of Ben's $100,000 that's actually taxed at 24% is pretty small. Only about $15,000 of his income are taxed at 24%. $10,000 is taxed at 10%, 30000 at 12%. 45,000 at 22%. And so in summary, the important summary is that Ben, his federal tax burden ends up being about $18,000, significantly less, about $6,000 less than what Ben originally assumed was $24,000. In fact, I'm even leaving out something important when I'm talking about here is that that's the standard deduction. You might not know this, but everybody right now, you can either itemize your deductions or you can choose to accept the standard deduction. And what that means is that the first block of your income is literally exempt from federal taxes. Right now, the standard deduction for a single filer, I believe, is about $12,500. And for married couples, it's about $25,000. So if your itemized deductions are more than twelve five, or as a couple, your itemized deductions are more than $25,000, then it makes sense for you to itemize and deduct as much money as you can from your taxes. But even if you don't have any itemized deductions, you still get that standard deduction and the first twelve dollars or $25,000 of your income is literally tax-free. So the progressive tax system with a standard deduction is significantly different than what many people assume the tax system looks like. And it's important that you understand that because one of the most common misconceptions, or I shouldn't say, it's, it's, it's a very common, it's probably not the most common, but it's a very common, often repeated personal finance myth is that accepting a raise could actually decrease your take-home pay. And the reason why this, this myth persists is that people think, well, I was in the 22% bracket and that little $2,000 raise pushed me into the 24% bracket. And they mistakenly think that that bump in taxes applies to all their income, which we've just gone over. That's that's not how it works. That the bump in taxes only applies to the, the most recent income. It only applies to the, the very tippy top income. So accepting a raise cannot hurt your income tax burden. Now, how did this myth appear in the first place? Well, based on what we've learned today, we, we understand that. All right, let's now switch over and talk about how taxes affect investing. If you aren't familiar, there's this important acronym that isn't used that often, but many investors think about the individual portions of this acronym. And this acronym is, is just a way to remember the important factors when you are thinking about investing. The acronym is R-R-T-T-L-L-U. Okay, is it Rudaloo? Is it Rattaloo? Rudaloo? I'm not sure. R-R-T-T-L-L-U. And individually, those letters stand for risk, return, timeline, taxes, liquidity, legal concerns, and then unique situations. Okay, I won't spend a ton of time going over each one of them, but real quick, risk. How much risk can you as an investor tolerate and what kind of risk is associated with the investment? Fairly straightforward. We talk about it a lot on the best interest. And then return, of course, what's the expected return of the investment? or what return is required to meet your goals. Remember, from a financial planning point of view, you should think about your goals first and then understand what return you need to get there. That's the kind of stuff I do at work all day. Risk and reward, we talk about that a lot. Timeline, another thing we talk about a lot. 
How much time do you have to get to your future goals? How old are you? Can you make short-term sacrifices for long-term gains? Those are some timeline questions to ask. We're going to come back to dive into the tax a little bit deeper. That's why we're here today. But first, the other letters. Liquidity. Do you have enough liquid cash to cover your near-term expenses? Do you have an emergency fund? Can you afford to invest in some illiquid ways? Can you lock up some of your money for the long term? Legal. Do you have any particular legal constraints that might prevent you from investing in certain things? A lot of us see this. There might be contribution limits for certain types of investing accounts like a 401k or an IRA. There might be withdrawal mandates on certain types of accounts, especially for older people, right? Required minimum distributions, that kind of stuff. Unique situations, that's kind of a catch-all. Some people, maybe they have a moral or ethical constraint against a particular investment. They don't want to invest in tobacco or alcohol or firearms companies. They're worried about ESG, environmental sustainability and governance objectives. Maybe they have inside knowledge of a particular corporation. They're in the C-suite and therefore they can't invest there. So those are some of the unique stuff. Maybe that last one's a legal thing, but either way, let's go back to taxes. The second T in this RRTTLLU framework talks about tax situations. Do you have any unique tax situations as an investor? What tax bracket are you in? How will that tax bracket change over time based on your expected income? What are some of the potential tax implications of your different investment choices? Many of us ask these questions and then execute some tax-efficient strategy via accounts like a 401k, IRAs, 403bs, HSAs, etc., we can go a step further and for taxable accounts, consider interest, dividends, and capital gains. We're definitely going to dive into the capital gains in a little bit. And then finally, we can ask questions about estate planning and inheritance. How will various investments affect the future estate of the investor and any beneficiaries, children, grandkids, charities, those kind of things they might wish to leave money to? So let's dive a little bit deeper on this tax and investing topic. What kind of return can you expect from the American stock market? Most sources would say 10% per year, nominally on average, account for inflation. The real return ends up around six and a half or 7%. Of course, we know that actual returns are disturbingly different than average returns. That's something I write about a lot on The Best Interest. It's something that a lot of good investing professionals will tell you. While the average might be 10% per year, you're rarely going to hit that average. You're usually either way over or way under, and that's why it's important to be a long-term investor in order to capture that average. But let's talk about the tax side of things. There are three types of tax treatments in American investment accounts. Tax-free accounts have no long-term tax burden. Typically, that's because income taxes have already been paid before the investment deposits. Roth accounts are one example of that. Tax-deferred accounts are, as the name implies, a way to defer taxes to the future. Traditional 401k accounts are one example. You pay no income tax today, invest in a 401k, and pay income taxes upon your future 401k withdrawals. Finally, we have taxable accounts. That's the third leg of the retirement stool. They provide none of the tax benefits outlined above before, but they're significantly more time-flexible. Most tax-free and tax-deferred accounts have age restrictions associated with their use, but not so with taxable accounts. As for the taxes themselves, the money going into taxable accounts has already suffered income tax. 
and the funds in the account will be subject to both dividend taxes throughout the life of that taxable account, and then eventually capital gains taxes when you withdraw from that account. So with these extra taxes, the dividend taxes and the capital gains taxes in taxable accounts, how are investment returns affected? How much do the 10% per year nominal returns decrease after we account for taxes? To answer this question, I downloaded the dividend tax rate, capital gains tax rate over the last 100 years, as well as Robert Schiller's very highly cited and well-respected S&P 500 data set. I ended up zooming in on the data from 1950 until today. That's a good post-World War II date providing 72 years of data. And I divided the period into 700 plus rolling 10-year periods. You know, an example would be March of 1954 to February of 1964. That's one period. I looked at each 10-year period as a modern investor might do as an opportunity to dollar cost average into the market, buying an even $100 of the S&P 500 every month. And for each period, I asked, what's the nominal tax-free stock market return? Then, if we include dividend taxes every month as various dividends are paid, and we include capital gains taxes as a lump sum at the end of the 10-year period, how much did the returns decrease? And then finally, I asked, how did inflation decrease the spending power of those returns over the 10-year period? So, on average... Each of these 10-year periods saw a total compounded return of 170%, or 10.4% per year. That does not include taxes nor inflation. That's pretty close to what we expect, about 10% per year. A tax-deferred account, like a traditional 401k, would see the same returns, except for a big bite of income taxes upon final withdrawal. If someone was paying a 22% federal income tax, their 170% total return would decrease to 133%, which makes more sense when we annualize it. You go from 10.4% per year down to 8.8% per year. Some of you, though, will max out your 401k and your IRA, and then the next smartest option is a simple taxable brokerage. In that case, dividend taxes will trim profits every month, and capital gains taxes will cause a big haircut upon final withdrawal. On average, each 10-year period in that case saw an annual rate of return of 7.2% per year versus the original 10.4%. In other words, taxes decrease stock returns basically by 41% overall, from 10.4% down to 7.2%. In this article, I've plotted out those returns over 10 years, both in total returns and also annualized. But we still need to adjust for inflation to see real returns. Real returns, in other words, measure how much did my actual spending power change. It accounts for inflation and taxes. The average real return of this data in the completely tax-free account, the first account, is 6.8% per year. In the traditional 401k that has no taxes until the end, then we pay income tax, the average real return was 5.2% per year. And then the average real return in a taxable account was 3.6% per year. So that 3.6% per year rate of return, that's, that's better than a kick in the pants, right? That's, that's better than zero. But 3.6% annualized is a far cry from that pre-tax, pre-inflation assumption of 10% per year. It's pretty easy to plan a retirement if your real spending power increases by 10% yearly, but it's much harder to do that at 3.6% per year. 
So what's the point of all this? The point is that most retirement calculators, especially the quick and easy ones on the internet, do not appropriately account for that tax drag. As such, they estimate that investors will increase their spending power by 6 or 7% per year. That's the nominal 10% minus 3.5% for inflation. But as we've seen today, that's incomplete. Your Roth and your 401k assets will grow in a tax-advantaged manner, totally true. But for many of us, a significant chunk of our stock portfolios that are in our taxable accounts will only see real growth of 3 to 4% per year, assuming that future growth will mimic the past, which of course is no guarantee. Some of you might be thinking, well, Jesse, tax rates have changed over time, and that's completely correct. As previously stated, taxes took an average 41% bite out of investment profits over the observed 10-year period since 1950, but recent tax rates have relaxed, with many recent periods seeing only, only, a 25 to 35% reduction. Now, I'd argue that's still a significant drag. What does the future hold for taxes? Well, taxes are currently historically low. So don't be surprised if future taxes go up from here and post-tax investment returns go down. Now, finally, some of you might see this and say, well, the ideal zero-tax account, which is essentially like a Roth account, returned 6.8% per year, and the traditional accounts returned 5.2% per year. So does that mean that Roth accounts are simply better? Well, we have to recall that traditional accounts have terrific tax benefits up front before any of the analysis that I've talked about today. If I had identical income tax rates today and at retirement, then the benefit of traditional accounts and Roth accounts would be exactly the same. That's just the math. Roth dollars do have a higher long-term return only because they've already had their taxed haircut up front. Traditional dollars are equal but opposite. There's no tax up front, but their future taxation affects the investment returns. And finally, some of you might be asking, should I avoid investing in taxable accounts altogether? Now, the way I approach it is that a positive real return, like our 3.6% per year, is way better than nothing. The dollars in your bank account over the last year or so have suffered a negative real return. That's a loss in purchasing power. So compared to that, I would take 3.6% any day. You know, the point of this section of the podcast is not to discourage you from investing in a taxable account. Rather, the point is to correct a common and overly optimistic assumption about investing returns. If you want a shorthand metric to plan your future, I'd recommend using these historical averages, but rounded down. Since I'm investing for long periods in a diversified stock portfolio, I use 6% real return per year for Roth accounts, a 5% real return per year for traditional accounts, and a 3% real return per year for taxable accounts. And that's for the stock portion of the portfolio. Now, I do want to dive deeper into the Roth versus traditional debate because it's a very hot debate, I'd say. It's not necessarily contentious, but the question comes up all the time when I'm reading online, should I invest in Roth? Should I invest in traditional accounts? Now, I would go deep on this topic here. The thing is, I need quite a bit of visual aids to support what I'm saying. The shorthand answer is, and I kind of already went over it a minute ago, it all depends on tax rates, current tax rates versus future tax rates. With Roth accounts, you get taxed up front, but you never get taxed again. So if you think that current tax rates are lower than the future, then you'd rather pay taxes now, which makes a Roth more beneficial. If you think tax rates might go down in the future, or your personal tax rates might go down in the future, then a traditional account makes more sense. 
So it depends on not only the federal tax rates and how you think they might change, but also how your personal income is going to change over time. How will your income fit into those tax brackets? Personally, I try to max out my traditional 401k as best I can. And I also try to max out my Roth IRA as best I can. I have a mix of both. So no matter what kind of tax situation is thrown at me in retirement, I can try to take advantage of what's going on by either paying some taxes when the tax rates are low out of my traditional account or not paying any taxes when tax rates are high out of my Roth account. If you want to see how this all works, if you want to see some charts that support some, the detail, if you want to see some graphs and even a few mathematical examples, check out the show notes. There's a link to an article. And the article is called Roth is Better Than Traditional. It's a blog post, good posts, good reading, lots of good info there. I highly recommend you check it out. How can a quick math error plus some faulty logic cost someone $120,000? This was a, a link or a story from October 2021 that I saw on the Bogleheads forum on Reddit. Someone was asking for investing help. The quick highlights of this person's situation is they had a 401k that offered a 2% match. Now, 2% is not great compared to the industry standard of 4 or 5%, but still, 2%, it's free money assuming they contribute to their 401k. The 401k has funds or investing vehicles with a 1% expense ratio, 1% fees. Now that's really high if all you're getting is an investment product, right? If you're gonna pay 1%, you expect much more than just an investment product. And that combination of poor employer matching and high fees made the person writing this post asking these questions, it made them wanna say, well, screw it, screw the 401k, I'd rather just invest in a taxable account. But they hadn't done the math to back up that gut instinct. So let's highlight some important points about their question and, and what's going on here. Now, open questions about money lead to important lessons. And this is a great question for this person to ask. But we can learn two quick lessons from the bad and the ugly aspects of this question. First, we have to separate what feels bad from what is bad. It might feel bad to pay a higher expense ratio than what's standard or typical, and it might feel bad to have a low employer match, but the math of the problem is a fact, and that math holds true irrespective of any feelings. Charlie Munger tells a story from when Berkshire Hathaway bought BNSF Railroad. Some of Berkshire Hathaway's shareholders felt that they were only getting a good deal, while the BNSF shareholders were getting a great deal on the transaction. And those shareholders wanted Berkshire's leadership, meaning Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, to negotiate a better deal. And Charlie Munger wisely pointed out, if you're getting a good deal, why the hell do you care what the other guy is getting? His point there being that envy, envy is a potent drug. Now, going back to the second lesson from this, this person's question about their 401k, they mentioned that they hadn't done the calculations for the long term, but they're pretty sure that they were getting a bad deal. And right there, time out. That's a dangerous statement in personal finance. If you don't know the calculations, that is okay, and you should ask for help. The internet is an amazing resource. But to be pretty sure about a mathematical outcome without doing any math, that is not a wise thing to do. So to get a real answer, you've got to do real math. So that's what I did, and we're going to talk about it now. So remember, this curious Redditor believed that their 401k would surely do worse than a taxable account. And I, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I used conservative assumptions for my hypothetical 401k investor 
And then I used comparatively kind assumptions for my hypothetical taxable investor. I wanted to be extra gracious to this Redditor's theory. Could his gut instinct be correct? The assumptions in the math can all be found in a, a Google spreadsheet that I'll, I'll link here in the show notes. We have both investors contributing the same amount. The 401k investor receives a 2% company match, but ends up paying a 1% expense ratio. The taxable investor pays income tax up front, receives no matching funds, but also pays no expense ratio, no fees. Both investors see the same investment performance before fees. Both investors pay taxes upon withdrawal. We're going to say that's 30 years in the future, though I assume a 22% income tax rate for the 401k investor and only a 10% capital gains rate for the taxable investor. Now, even with my harsh assumptions, right, even though I'm being conservative with a 401k investor and liberal with the taxable investor, the 401k in this case outperforms the taxable investor by $120,000 or about 12% over a 30-year period. That's a huge amount. The 2% company match and the tax-deferred nature of the 401k are extremely significant and outweigh the fact that there's this 1% fee involved. Not to rub salt in the wound, but recall that this person was fairly certain that their taxable account was the smarter choice. So the lesson here is to always question your assumptions, especially if math can help you. I guarantee you know someone who could build a spreadsheet like this in 15 minutes or less. You can call me if you want help with that. It's not that much time, but there's a large amount of money to be gained. Now, finally, we're going to do a deep dive into capital gains taxes. A reader recently wrote in to me and said, Jesse, after a tough tax season for me, can you offer any advice on capital gains tax planning? Should I set up a tax withholding on my taxable accounts? What general framework should people use? And that's a question from Jennifer. Jennifer is a reader of the blog. Thank you, Jennifer. That's a great question. So let's devote some time to the basics of capital gains taxes. Capital gain occurs when you sell an asset for more than you bought it for. It's like profit, right? It's a synonym for profit. A capital loss occurs when you sell an asset for less than you bought it for. Capital gains or capital losses become realized upon such a sale. Until that sale, the gain or loss is considered unrealized. Sometimes those are called paper gains or paper losses when they're unrealized. While realized capital gains are taxed, that's the point of what we're going to talk about here, never forget that capital gains are evidence that something good has happened, right? You've turned a profit. How are capital gains calculated and what accounting methods are used? This is kind of important. In their most simple form, obviously, capital gains are synonymous with profit, but there are three different accounting methods that can be used to calculate capital gains. The first one is called first in, first out, and it assumes that you're selling your oldest shares first. If you bought shares over a number of years and then you decide to sell some of those shares this year, the gain or the profit is used assuming that you are selling your oldest shares. The second method is called specific share identification. As the name implies, it involves identifying exactly which shares are being sold at any given time. Now, to keep taxes low, this is probably the method that I would use because you would sell whichever shares would result in the lowest capital gain. But since you're identifying specific shares, you need to ensure that you're keeping excellent records of everything. The last method is called the average basis method. To use that method, you would average the cost basis or you would average the purchase price of all of your shares over 
the number of years that you've bought them, and you would get the average price per share. And then you'd use that average price to calculate the capital gains on a current sale. Once that method is used, then all remaining unsold shares get reconstituted at that cost basis. So now, how are capital gains taxed? Capital gains are subject to tax in taxable accounts. There are no capital gains in 401ks, in IRAs, in HSAs, or in any other qualified or tax-advantaged investing accounts. There are no capital gains in tax-advantaged or qualified investing accounts, only in taxable accounts. The first major consideration in determining capital gains tax is the duration of holding the asset. If you held an asset for less than a year before selling it, it generates a short-term capital gain or loss. If you held it for more than a year, it generates a long-term capital gain or loss. Short-term capital gains are taxed as normal income. For many Americans, that equates to a 12 to 24% tax rate. Long-term capital gains are taxed anywhere from 0 to 23.8%, depending on the investor's total income. We'll, we'll dive into that a little bit later. Now, importantly, capital losses offset capital gains. Going even further, capital losses can offset some of your normal income up to $3,000 per year, and excess capital losses can carry forward into future tax years. That's why the concept of tax loss harvesting is important to consider when thinking about capital gains. Which assets are subject to capital gains? The most common assets are stocks, bonds, some real estate. Vehicles can be subject to capital gains. And other reasonable capital gains assets include gems and jewelry, digital assets, household furnishings, gold, silver, other metals, coin collection, stamp collections. There's a, quite a list. But for most of us, the most common capital gains we'll run into in our life are stocks, bonds, real estate. Now, how are long-term capital gain taxes calculated? This is an important concept that is very often misunderstood in personal finance circles. And it's often, it's, it's misunderstood on, on the wrong side. Usually people think that they can get away with paying less tax than they actually can. So long-term capital gains are taxed based on a tax filer's taxable income, not just based on their capital gains alone. As a reminder, taxable income includes many sources, including wages, salary, commissions, bonuses, unearned income, such as canceled debts or government benefits, and then it includes the capital gains themselves, as well as investment dividends and interest. All of those things combine to create your taxable income, and then your capital gains tax bracket is based on that taxable income. So I'll just go through, there, there's a table here in the article in the show notes, and I'm not going to go through section by section of the table to read you the entire long-term capital gains tax rates. But long story short, you can be taxed at 0% for the first $44,000, 15% from $44,000 up to $500,000, and then 20% over $500,000. Now, for a single filer, what that means, if your total taxable income falls below $44,625, then you'll owe nothing on any capital gains. That is the where the confusion comes in. Because many people see that and they mistakenly think that their first 44625 in capital gains is not taxed, which would be great. Well, that's only true if someone has no other taxable income, right? Because it looks at the total taxable income. If your total taxable income is under 44000 then none of your capital gains are taxed. There's a really nice chart in the article 
in the show notes that graphically shows this, showing some normal income, some deductions, how your total income tax works, then how the capital gains are stacked on top of that, and then which portion of the capital gains are taxed. So next, when are capital gains taxes due? Normal income tax is withheld from your paycheck to make estimated tax payments throughout the year. Now, capital gains are a bit different. Nevertheless, you should consider making capital gains tax payments on a quarterly basis using estimated tax payments. In other words, you should not wait until the end of the year to make a large lump sum capital gains tax payment. Instead, you should make estimated tax payments. And and there are some rules here about making estimated tax payments. You should definitely make estimated quarterly tax payments if you think that you'll owe a capital gains tax of at least $1,000 and your current year's tax withholding is less than 90% of what you owe for the year or less than 100% of what you owed last year. That's a little bit confusing, at least the way that and or logic and, and some of the wording there. So a little example might clear things up. And this example and these numbers are written out in the article if you want to consult them there. So let's say last year, John and Jamie earned $160,000 and they paid $20,736 in federal taxes. So income was one sixty. Their federal taxes was approximately $21,000. Now this year, their combined salary is $170,000 and they're on pace to pay a federal withholding of essentially $23,000. But in February... John and Jamie decide to sell some assets for a $50,000 long-term capital gain. These capital gains all happen to fall in the 15% bracket based on their total taxable income. And that means that they're incurring a tax burden, a capital gains tax burden of $7,500. The question is, should John and Jamie make estimated quarterly tax payments? So let's go back to those two rules above. Are they going to owe capital gains of at least $1,000? The answer there is yes, they're going to owe $7,500. But then the second question is, is their current year withholding less than 100% of what they owed last year? Well, the answer to that is no, because their current year withholding is on pace for $23,000, and last year they owed $21,000. So they're definitely withholding enough out of their normal taxable income. However, is their current year withholding less than 90% of what they'll owe this year? And the answer there is yes, because this year they're going to owe $23,000 plus $7,500 but they're only withholding the 23,000 part. They're only withholding about 75% of what they're gonna owe, which is under the 90% threshold. Therefore, the federal government is going to say to them, you need to make up for that. You need to make some quarterly estimated tax payments so that we, the government, are going to receive at least 90% of what you owe us throughout the year. Those quarterly tax payments are due on April 15th, June 15th, September 15th, and January 15th. That's boring logistical stuff that you can Google. Okay, next topic. Can you set up a withholding for capital gains? This is one of Jennifer's original questions above. Withholding is a concept that comes from the income tax world when a final tax bill is predictable based on income. The capital gains world is not so clear. The reason why is because we have to ask questions like, well, will there be more capital gains later this year? Will there be capital losses to offset the capital gains? Will you even owe capital gains taxes or will you fall into the 0% capital gains bracket? For all those reasons, it's hard to set up a fixed percentage withholding for capital gains purposes. Instead, many investors elect to create a, a DIY withholding account to ensure that they maintain enough cash to fully cover their capital gains tax burden on a quarterly basis. 
Essentially, what it means is if you're the people we talked about before, John and Jamie, you sold assets for $50,000 in long-term capital gains, and you know that you owe that $7,500, you should set aside $7,500 in cash in your bank account to act as a, a personal withholding from which you're going to make your, your estimated quarterly tax payments. There's something important to talk about here called the net investment income tax, the NII tax. The NII tax is relatively recent, and it effectively states, or it effectively acts, I should say, as an additional capital gains tax at a 3.8% rate. The NII tax applies to investment income, so only investment income, above $200,000 if you're filing singly or above $250,000 if you're filing jointly. And so what it really means is that it applies to some of the 15% capital gains bracket, and it applies to all of the 20% capital gains bracket. In other words, there are effectively four capital gains brackets. It's not 0, 15, and 20. It's 0 and 15, but then part of the 15% bracket is affected by NII and becomes, for all intents and purposes, an 18.8% capital gains tax. And then all of the 20% bracket is affected by NII, so it becomes a 23.8% capital gains tax bracket. Let's get to some good stuff. How should you avoid or minimize capital gains taxes? I'm going to keep these tips brief. We can always go into more detail. Reach out to me if you want more ideas. Number one, take advantage of tax-deferred investing accounts. Number two, invest for the long-term. Avoid short-term capital gains tax rates. Number three, try to offset capital gains with capital losses. Number four, utilize tax loss harvesting and carry over losses to future years. Number five, utilize tax gain harvesting in low-income years. Number six, use the best accounting methods for your situation from the accounting methods we talked about before. Number seven, wait to die. Seriously, we'll, we'll get into that one later. Number eight, asset location. Place your high tax investments in qualified accounts and place your low tax investments in taxable accounts. Number nine, use high gains assets for your donations. The charity that you donate to gets full value you pay no capital gains taxes, and you get a tax deduction. And number 10, you can use high gains assets as loan collateral. Now, I've never done this, and I'm not necessarily sure I would recommend it, but if you're looking to avoid capital gains taxes, you can reach out to your brokerage firm, and many firms offer loans against shares. So you can get a loan, giving you some cash liquidity that you need without selling the underlying shares. Now, let's go back to number seven about waiting to die. The question is, well, what if someone dies? Who pays the capital gains taxes if someone dies with a lot of unrealized capital gains? Under current tax law, if you die and you leave high gains assets to your heirs, no capital gains tax will be paid on the transfer. Nothing is paid by your estate and nothing is paid by your heirs. Now, not only that, but your heirs, they receive the assets on a stepped up basis. Now, what that means is, Let's say you bought Apple in the year 2000 when it was less than $1 per share, and today it's $166 per share. If you sold it today, that $165 gain per share is subject to capital gains. But if you die today, your heirs will inherit those Apple shares at a $166 cost basis. If they sold the shares tomorrow, let's say it's the same price tomorrow, the IRS would look at that and say, you received the shares at 166, you sold the shares at 166, there is no capital gain and therefore no tax. 
For that reason, capital gains tax planning is especially important in retirement or in older years. It's especially important for any assets that you plan on handing down to your heirs. Or simply, it's important if you think you have enough assets that you don't need to sell and incur any capital gains. You can just wait to die and absolve yourself of any unrealized capital gains taxes. Granted, that area of the tax code is hotly debated and it's in legislative crosshairs. In general, capital gains taxes, right, a a tax on capital, they're significantly lower than income taxes, which are a tax on labor. And for a few different reasons, many people don't really think that makes sense and, and think that it's quite the loophole to allow people to die and absolve themselves of capital gains taxes. Kind of interesting stuff. Okay, everyone, that is the episode. That is all I've got today on taxes. I hope it helps. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Thank you again for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.